Welcome to another episode of the Black and Blue Pod. I am here with one of my favorite writers and producers, Cayman Grant. She is an Emmy Award-winning winner, writer. Well, she's also a winner in general of life, <laughs> a writer, a producer. She's contributed to major movies and documentaries such as ESPN's 30 for 30, Playing for the Mob, The Boy, The Social Network. She's also the host of her own podcast, The White Speak Podcast. And her projects have been screened over a hundred film festivals and she's earned countless out accolades. So Cayman, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm glad to get the chance to interview you. Uh, we talked a little bit before I started recording. Um, Playing for the Mom, my personal favorite 30 for 30. It's definitely top three at least for me. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you for coming on to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm I'm really kind of really a writer director. I'm also a producer, but I'm kind of forced to be a producer because um, I end up doing a lot of the producing of my stuff. But you know, my I I'm a director first and foremost, and then I got um, backwarded into being a writer, and then the writing things really taken where my life has gone. But but I'm a creator. You know, creator of content. Hey, cre exactly. Do. We're all the same thing. Creators of our own stories. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I've had the fortunate opportunity to be able to build something of my own. It's very small right now, but, you know, I get opportunities to interview people such as you and um, other uh, favorite writers that I personally admire that I never thought in a million years I would be able to get the chance to interview. So, oh, that's great. Yeah, it's been awesome. Um, it's, it's great to do a podcast because you do, you get to, you get to meet people you wouldn't otherwise meet. Exactly. Like I interviewed for my first episode, uh, Roland Lazenby mm -hmm. and he wrote two books. One I'm in the middle of on Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, their mm -hmm. independent biographies and the Michael Jordan book helped uh the director jason air uh navigate the last dance and that book basically was the bible of the last dance and getting the chance to interview him was amazing because he's another writer of mine that like i have this book that i read and i'm actually interviewing the guy who put those thoughts in the paper and like actually did all this research and i thought it was the coolest thing ever and it's been such a fun time to do this on my own and get to meet new people. Well, this uh, is like um, a way to also investigate what you want to know, right? It's um, exactly it's my own platform. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I get to pick the things that I want to talk about, which is one of the best things. Because as much as I love writing and covering sports, I have ran into some moments where it's like, okay, we can't necessarily cover that, and so mm -hmm. that gets a little frustrating. So doing the podcast has been awesome. Um, you know, obviously with COVID, I would much prefer to do more in-person interviews, but of course. you know, can't That's wish life. for everything. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm learning the early hurdles of life in my freshman <laughs> year of college. So yeah, I know. I feel so bad for folks and at least you get to go to college and yeah, you know, I'm in California. So um, even, even here in PA, 
sorry to cut you off there, but here in PA, um, like I have friends who are going to closer uh, in the city schools in Philadelphia, such as Drexel University and Temple University, and they're struggling to stay open and try and bring kids into classes. So I'm very lucky that Penn State has done a good job of mitigating uh, outbreaks and, you know, keeping testing under control. So it's been much more positive than most of my friends so far, to say the least. I mean, how are you dealing with COVID? I mean, I'm sure it's been tough to try and or it may be even easier to try and sell projects to networks and, you know, these big uh, distributors. How is, how have you handled it so far? Um, yeah. I mean, you get a lot of writing done um, in times like these and you get a lot of prep done and we're, we pretty much can't shoot right now, but there's a lot of things we can do. Um, but I feel like I'm, I'm being productive uh, and getting stuff done, but it is more from a writing, a writing perspective and, you know, setting up projects online is what is happening now. So you just get used to pitching on zoom and, you know, seeing your face while it's like pitching in a mirror. Yeah, and exactly. Actually, I find it easier than in person. So I, don't I mean, know. I Definitely. I think a lot of I, writers probably do. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Because I definitely find myself when I'm interviewing these people that I feel are amazing people and are like way above me that they shouldn't be wasting my time with me. But, mm -hmm. and I think uh, talking to them over Zoom is like helped me sort of control my public speaking anxiety, I guess. And mm -hmm. like, mannerisms that in person that I would do people don't normally pick up on because you're just seeing me in a computer screen so mm -hmm. it's definitely been cool um adjusting to zoom and it's definitely been like oh I could just interview this person over zoom instead of just trying to cram in a, into a busy schedule on like the weekends or something so it, it has its perks absolutely absolutely definitely. yeah and I think it, you know it'll give you the opportunity to get confident so that when you're in person it just changes yeah, you know, definitely. you're, it's, it's like training, you know, you're getting the, you know, training. It's, it's fun. Yeah, exactly. It's I get nervous practice. when I do podcasts. I always, I still do interviewing certain people make me very nervous and, you know, cause I get excited and I also don't want to look like a tool. So, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> it's normal. We all yeah. as writers, as people, we all go through the same things. And that's something yeah, I've learned. Definitely the writer part of my brain is like, oh yeah, if I wanted to get a sheet of questions that I could ask this person, I could do that. But then I have to stand in front of this person and ask face to face these questions. And I may not like the answer or I may not like how I'm coming across. Mm -hmm. So I think there's definitely that different part of your brain that's like, this could go either way. So it's definitely exciting. And I'm trying... I'm trying to contain myself a little bit. So, cause I'm very excited to interview you. So oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. Thank well, you, you don't much. have to be nervous around me. I'm, I'm as laid back as they get. Trust and believe <laughs> I am. I'm totally yeah. laid back. And before meeting you, I always thought of you as this amazing director, which you definitely are, but as a sort of mythical figure who did this 30 for 30, that I think is a very big deal. And I never oh. thought I'd get the chance to interview you. So well, I'll tell you, um, sort of, uh, well, not set up yet, but we're making it into a limited series. So the whole, Ooh. 
exclusive. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I haven't, well, it's not set up at studio yet, but um, that's what I'm developing right now. And so, you know, we're going to be doing the Lufthansa heist and the Boston College stuff. So it's, it's going to be the full range of, you know, um, a good fellas plus times 10, you know, in terms of getting to know characters and what really happened. And because uh, there's things that within that didn't make the 30 for 30, because it's just, it's too complicated to get into other areas of things. So you just want to keep it um, streamlined as a story, because it's a very difficult story to tell. So we decided to adapt it into a, a limited series. And so that's what I'm working on now, an eight part. Wow, so that sounds awesome. We'll see that, yeah. Yeah, can you explain just for the, the listeners who may not be aware of the documentary or may not have watched it, can you explain a little bit the, what it basically was? Basically the premise, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, um, most people, so a lot of folks have seen the movie Goodfellas, um, maybe not from your generation though, but in my generation and above, it is one of the, it's either men's, most men's favorite film or top three favorite films. Yeah. So, and it's centered around Henry Hill and, and the Lucchese crime family in New York, one of the, the crime families, one of the five majors. And, um, but about this lower life, um, lower level, not life, um, associate named Henry Hill. And it's the idea of, of him becoming this gangster and that's all he ever wanted to be. And again, it's a very popular film. And when I discovered that at the end of that film, it makes it seem like these guys went down for this um, heist called the Lufthansa heist, the Lufthansa heist. And the Lufthansa heist was the largest uh, heist, um, I think airport heist in history. It's, it's one of the first, but yeah. when I discovered that that's not actually what they went down for, because I'm <laughs> obsessed with crime and mob and all of that stuff, or always was, and still am. Um, but uh, when I discovered that that wasn't what they went down for, and I found out it was the Boston College Sports um, um, point shaving scandal, I, I immediately became obsessed with the story and got to know everybody and, and uh, worked on getting that done. And so what it is really is it's the story that took this major crime figure and the figures around him, Jimmy the Gent Burke, down um, and they ended up dying in prison. Henry, Henry went into witness protection. But so this is the story where I pulled this old time gangster out to tell this story. And I found the other gangsters that were involved um, as well from Pittsburgh. So it's the Pittsburgh connection from Goodfellas. So it's really this, the story center, centered around a point shaving scandal that involves Boston College and these kids from Boston College um, one of them being connected to to Pittsburgh and them being um, targeted and then put into this situation as as young kids and then ending ending up that they take down and it ends up taking down a major crime family or an element of it so it's um it's a really fun story uh, and it's a, a thing that most people didn't know about so I 
I loved bringing that to life. And it, it was a very popular one when it came out. I remember Colin Cowherd followed me on Twitter. That's my claim to fame. Um, and because he's like, this is, I, I just love this thing, you know? Um, and I think it was number two for him. I think the U was his first favorite. And then Goodfellas is, is that, something like that. But it was top three for him anyway. So I was thrilled. Um, I mean, you haven't listened to my podcast yet, but I, I laid into Colin Coward in the last episode or last week because I'm an Eagles fan and he started ripping apart Carson Wentz for wearing a backwards hat. And I was not about to take any of that. So him and I may not get on the same foot or on the same page when we meet, but I still respect the guy. I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way, you know, like this Boston College point saving scandal. For those who may not know point shaving, what these gangsters were doing was fixing basketball games where um, trying to. Yeah, they were trying to. <laughs> yeah. And they exactly. couldn't. That's the funny part. The, the, yeah, the game were, that couldn't shoot straight. Yeah, exactly. Like they were trying to fix Boston College basketball games and they would bet on the underdogs and then pay the Boston College players to keep the score down so that they could get a bigger payout. And you know, it turned into a disaster because then they weren't winning. And I think they picked the wrong school, honestly, because I don't know if I would pick a Jesuit school to necessarily rely on for crime. But um, so how did this, you kind of briefly talked about how much you were interested in that. How did the actual project come together? Like, how did this, how did you approach ESPN and say, hey, I want to, I want to do this. And I think this would be an awesome 30 for 30. Well, I had already done a lot of it before the ESPN was approached. So I was working on it, um, knowing that Henry and the folks surrounding the story wouldn't probably live very long. Mm -hmm. um, they were getting up in age. So I, you know, got everybody on camera. My initial idea was that I would make it into a movie, not a documentary. But part of what I do as my strategy is in any majority of the things that I do are true life stories. So instead of interviewing people uh, just audibly, I will film them on camera as well and make a documentary that, you know, gives you the facts because I have to find out the facts anyway. I may as well make a documentary at the same time and utilize that information to make a, a feature. Mm -hmm. But this is when features were hot at the time, like features are, you know, movies right now are not the same. TV is the, it's the golden time for TV. So most people like limited series and such because they end up, you're able to learn more about the story that, that, that you wouldn't get to know otherwise. Look at Goodfellas, for example, they weren't able to tell any of this stuff. Um, and it's because they focused on a certain part of their lives. So um, so what I did was, is I'd gotten all the gangster stuff done. I'd gotten all the Pittsburgh stuff done. Um, we're actually going to cut a separate film from the other footage that we have that it's a full movie, Henry's funeral, different things that we didn't do. So perfect. we're cutting that more. right now. I yep. will happily consume it. Yeah. Yeah. Well then I'll have you review it and maybe do something for it. So that'd be great. Ooh. Um, yeah so we'll see about that right like when it comes of out I'll, I, well before it's launched i'll let you know because we'll we'll get we're going to do some prep on it and stuff of uh, before we even try to sell it um 
but it, so it won't be an ESPN thing. It's going to be separate because it's, it's, be its, it's, it's okay. F-bombs. It's Henry Folly <laughs> getting in fights. There's a lot of stuff in it that would blow your mind. Um, so we ended up taking, I ended up, um, there was a, a guy named Joe Levine who I co-directed this with. Um, and Joe has done some of the best films ever. He's won so many Emmys and Peabody's. And Joe was working at HBO at the time. And through the folks that I I um, interviewed already, they were telling me that Joe has been wanting to do this movie for a long time at, at HBO, but he never got the funding for it. They never greenlit it. And so I reached out to Joe and we developed a, re a relationship, a rapport. And when he left HBO, I offered that he come on to our project to get it done because I knew he was a heavyweight. And not only that, like he just really loved this project. And I really, it's so important to have people who work with you that love the project as much as you do. And he, he was from Trenton. He's from Trenton. So he, Jim Sweeney, he'd known about Jim for all his life. So we ended up partnering up and he's the one who brought to the table the inner, the, another production company. And then we went to ESPN because they'd all, this other production company, Gary Cohen and Triple Threat Media, they'd already done nine 30 for 30s, I think it was with ESPN. So, so we just got together. We all had a meeting and we knew in the room that it was greenlit because apparently many people had brought the story together uh, to them or to try to pitch it, but no one had ever had the mob side. So I had all the bad guys. And <laughs> And everyone else had the good guys. So it just worked <laughs> out, you know, and, um, and, and it was a wonderful experience and ESPN's wonderful. Um, I love that they do the 30 for 30s. I think that they will be considered one of, you know, some of the most important films, documentaries ever done in sports. No question. You know, they're just, yeah. are none. They're just amazing. Def yeah, definitely. And the people who run the show there are great too. Yeah, 30 for 30s will stand the test of time, in my opinion. I'm always going to, if I ever have a son, God willing, I'm going to sit him down and, hey, you're going to binge these. Or mm -hmm. if you want to, here's some more. You know, I'm going to feed my kids 30 for 30s. And <laughs> there's, there's just, True. there's something there for everyone. Like you said, even playing True. for the mob, mm -hmm. there's, there's the crime element to it. You have, um, the OJ Made in America documentary series, you have Fantastic Lies, you have uh, the you on the other side. Like you have these different stories where it's so many different elements to them that they're going to appeal to someone. They're, and they're no the story what. behind the sport, right? They're not really the sport. So I always yeah. tell, you know, my girlfriends who may not be sports fan, I'm like, this is not, these are not sports stories. They're just what's happening behind, which in a sports person's world or in a team's world, the stakes are, are the losing and, and the sport, but there's just so much more to it than that. And there's so much going on in their personal lives and, um, and the whys of what happens. And, and, um, and that's really why we even watch any movies and stuff, right? It's like, we don't watch, um, you know, like, let's say in a law and order because we want to see a cop station. <sighs> 
right? We're watching for the characters. My dad absolutely loves Law and Order, and he's deaf in one ear. Mm-hmm. So, the t- whenever he watches TV, he just jacks up the volume to like ninety. Like me and my sister complain about it routinely. So I'll be like upstairs trying to go to sleep, and then all I hear is Kong Kong like downstairs, <laughs> and it like scares the shit out of me. I'm like, oh god. That's awesome. So, my mom's deaf too. She's she's ninety percent, ninety five percent with both uh, ears. So she always has a TV on blast. I I don't know why they want it on blast or even I I have um I don't I'm not hard of hearing, but I always have this the um close the captioning on. Yeah. yeah, I told I told my dad I was like, Dad, you're such a you love reading so much, yet you hate closed captioning. So, like, I feel like that would be the perfect match made. That's an acceptance of that becomes an acceptance that they're losing their hearing, right? That's yeah, a hard, exactly. hard thing for them. I, I get really frustrated with my mom, but, it, you know, and I, I try to be patient. It's almost impossible when it's your own parents, but, um, but yeah, yeah, I, I mean, wish I could be better about that. <laughs> and me, me and my family have pretty much come to accept it, that we're probably going to go deaf as a result of this. So we're mm-hmm. going to go down with the, we're going to go down with the ship anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, My brother is losing his hearing. So it's, oh, it's I'm sorry hereditary for me too, but it, it, but I, I don't have that gene. So oh, it's like, it, it, there's a few, I think my brother Colin might have it as well. So, um, but yeah, there's, um, but I didn't get it. Um, yeah. And yeah. I mean, that's what to me, like playing for the mob, like even if I theoretically just put playing for the mob on mute you're still captivated by these these people that have done yeah the characters henry hill is like you can't even describe him his like i'm italian and um like henry hill is the guy that i would want to be as i get older as like the older italian like grandfather like great grandfather where he has the suave and the confidence and just the coolness factor. And I think that's what makes these mafia stories in general, whether it's Goodfellas, The Godfather, you have The Irishman recently coming out, you have New York Fear City documentary series on Netflix recently coming out. I mean, America just loves the mob because no one knows anything about them for the most part. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, was were you always interested in like crime stories growing up? I mean, how did you really get into really covering and saying like, hey, I want to be a director covering these stories. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by why people do what they do, right? So I've never seen anyone as black and white. That person's bad, that person's good. In fact, I would connect with people who did bad things and I would understand why they did them. So my fascination, first and foremost, is with the human. And, And my job is to put human behavior on screen as a director and to write it. And so... The big thing for me and why I, you know, I have several stories similar to this type of thing and based on true life um, is that I'm able to connect with the person who did these things. Somehow, some way, I'm able to gain their trust. And it takes time, um, but I've been very fortunate. So my, and I think it stems directly from my my upbringing, studying people and empathizing with people as, as human beings and not seeing them or judging them in certain ways. So that's my fascination is why people do what they do. 
a criminal, there's nothing black and white. I know people that were hitmen. And you think you're a hitman, and I don't fear that person at all. Um, it was their job. It's yeah. what they, it's like a, nobody, everybody has a purpose and a reason of why they do what they do. And it's not, evil is not real, right? We are created by our societies and the illnesses within our societies are what lack of education, mental health stems from, you know, not, you know, um, having bad childhoods, different things, but they're all stemmed by systemic issues. And so we, and some people, the mother, their mother is the prison system. They, they, that's, they've been in and out of prison. So if their mother was the prison system, what are you going to expect? So all of these folks, but there are things about these, these people who committed crimes or things that people, however, somebody might perceive them as criminals, bad guys, whatever, right? Um, none of them are bad guys. None of them. They all have... Mm -hmm something that I've discovered is the reason they are who they are. One of the things I recognize most often is the lack of father, a lack of parenting um, that those children never experienced as children, the love that people experience and love is everything um, when it comes to what we turn out to be in our, in our, in our view of self. And they also have, something that, you know, academically was an impediment for their academics rather, like that they, like a, a very common, they're dyslexic. So back in the day, you stupid idiot, how come you write that backwards? How come you can't see this? How come you, mm -hmm. you write? This is how they were treated by their parents, yeah. by the teachers. And so they found another way to find acceptance and to find their tribe, to find the love, right? So yeah, definitely. And they found it with other people who were doing bad things, but those bad people, those people that were doing bad things also might've had that. So there's so much to all this. It's very deep. Yeah, no one would it's think definitely. it's deep, but it is deep. If no, you give it, a crap, is. you'll discover it's deep. Yeah, exactly. Like, even in Goodfellas, you see that where um, Ray Liotta's character is um, playing Henry Hill. Um, he's getting repeatedly whipped as he's talking about like his childhood and stuff by his, his father. And, you know, like this isn't happening just in one specific community. It's across races, genders, religions, whatever, where if mm -hmm. you lose the fear of getting an ass whipping from your parents, you're going to be like more nonchalant about school or whatever it may be. You know, I definitely think when I'm making a decision is, okay, are my parents going to kill me if they find this out? Or is it, okay, is this something that like I'm making the right decision because this is what my parents would want me to do. So there's definitely, it's all back to the human brain and just how we think it's about all it. about the parents. The parents make or break us. They really do. Very few yeah. of us are, are born with bad code. Our parents yeah. create our code. It's, I'm thankful that I have the parents that I have today because I'm fortunate enough to be able to go to Penn State. My brother and sister are both um, great people. Uh, my in-laws, great people. I mean, it's been, it's been cool. I've definitely been more appreciative of... The upbringing that I have and I'm glad that 
as much as I would love to be a Henry Hill or a notoriety of a Henry Hill, it's the road to get there is much, much more difficult than we would like. So, I mean, well, you talked about- but, but you got Henry had a very like really bad. It was, it was, it was very messed up. Yeah. Henry had a hard time. Henry was a, a good man though. He, he, inside. I remember going, we would pass a homeless person and he gave him everything that was in his wallet. Right. Henry is, was a, a, a man of many, many things. And, but he was a tormented man as well. So when he turned state's evidence, he turned against the only people that he felt loved him, right? Like it was a, a, it was a family. It wasn't just a crime family. It was an actual family. And he had to he had to live with that torment his whole life. And you know, and then living as someone you're not and that's all you know. I mean, he he had a hard time and and you know, it it's you know, it's something that in this new piece that we're doing um we're you'll see a bit of that you're going to see his torment you're going to see him going back and reuniting with his old pals some of them right the ones for the boston college you're going to see um it's 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 more from polly's perspective polly Maisie, but it but it henry is it's you know it's Polly and Henry is what it is basically. And yeah, and I mean, it, it's going to be, yeah, it, it's just it, seeing them do what they do. It's yeah. Exactly. And um, for those who may not be aware this scandal, Henry Hill was basically the creator. And then he brings in his buddy, Paul Maisie to help him out pretty much and bring in more cash. And then they also uh, bring in the Perla brothers, uh, Rocco and Tony Perla. Well, it's actually Polly who's the one who brought Henry in. So they oh, met. Really? So this is the stuff that yeah. Oh wait, oh wait, don't know. They met in Lewisburg Prison, right? Yeah. Polly and Henry. Basically, like a mansion for criminals, pretty much. Like they got well, treated much better, right? No, no, that's all. Really? That's all movies too. They did have ways to paying off the the guards and stuff like that, and they did get off compound because Lewisburg. Polly was one of the ones who helped Henry go get the stuff from Karen two miles off the prison, but it was a farm camp it's called. So they worked, they had a dairy farm there and stuff. So the people in the prison worked there. So it was two miles, I think, to get to the next road or something like major road, but that's, they would, they would do that and sneak it into the prison. They'd hide it into the, in the dairy and then, get it during the day, pay off the guard to get it back up to mm. their thing. So there were ways okay. that they did things that, you know, they, yeah, they the, the movie over, over dramatic. Yeah. 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 But it's drama I, too. It's you know, but it was Polly <laughs> that was with them a lot of times for that. And, um, but yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, no one wants to see Karen handed off to Polly and then Polly hands it to Paul, like to Henry. And that's not right, exciting. Well, well, it was Henry, Henry went with them. So they went together. Uh, he just went with them gotcha. to carry, right? It's yeah. um, it, you know, no, no, all of that's still the same. It's just Henry or Henry wasn't by himself. Okay, I just so thought my my, yeah. yeah, my first understanding of Lewisburg from both the documentary and necessarily the movie was 
it's much more um, upper class for a, a prison <laughs> for mm-hmm. mobsters. But okay, mm-hmm. I am mistaken. I, no, I it's that they glorify the power they had within the prison is what they were doing. Is that, mm. and, and there was a little bit of that. Um, they, were, they were able to get stuff in and their contraband and they were able to cook for themselves and stuff like that, but they were still locked up. Right. Yeah. So still prison it, at the end of the day. It's still prison. That's right. And they don't like that. They don't like to be controlled. Yeah, definitely. Um, so switching gears to the the players. I mean, Jim Sweeney, star point guard, Mr. Boston College. Ernie Cobb is their leading scorer on this team, and Rick Coon, who was the Pittsburgh connection that brought Sweeney and Cobb into the operation, whether they liked it or not. Um, their star, pretty much their center or power forward, their big man down low. How was it, how difficult was it like getting in contact with these guys to bring them together? Because you have Sweeney and Cobb in the documentary, but it seems like Rick Coon just disappeared off the face of the earth. Rick is a sweetheart. Um, my, that's my only regret is that he wasn't in the film to tell his side of the story. Rick was the one who got the most wounded out of this, you know, mm-hmm. and Rick, you know, he, he had a rough go and, but he's, um, there's reasons that he didn't want to do the film. And, and I respect that. Uh, but in no way is it a reflection of anything negative. In fact, it's au contraire, right? It's cause he didn't want his daughter, um, to be affected by it. He didn't, he didn't, you know, he had his reasons. I get it, you know? I, yeah, I mean, definitely if you watch the documentary and that's your only knowledge of it, it's very easy for people to necessarily jump to a conclusion of, oh, it was, this was very one-sided. He knew what he was doing and all that stuff. When it's like we we talked about much earlier, um, you know, all crime is much more multifaceted than people think. And it's not, absolutely. it's not all driven like that. And, and the love, they didn't really know, they didn't really think what they were doing was that big of a deal. Yeah. They're still, they weren't losing games on purpose. They weren't doing anything. It's just make sure it comes within seven points. Well, okay. Yeah, exactly. That's a federal crime. And then it turns out to be the first sports betting case under the RICO Act ever in history? It was of course I didn't think it was a crime because no. it probably wasn't before then, you know, as much. Although you can't deliberately change the outcome of a game in any way. That, um, and it's, it's very difficult to say, um, oh, that bad pass or that turnover was because they were fixing it and they were trying to throw the game. And it's just, it's, it's too many things, too many different variables that can change the outcome of a game to say, oh yeah, that's evidence to um, say that they were fixing. All right, guys. So that was part one of my interview with the great Cayman Grant. Such a fun interview. Um, Keep an eye out for when part two is going to be published. I will probably post it on our social media platforms. So make sure you're following and subscribing to all of those. Uh, Again, hope you guys enjoyed the episode and just keep an eye out for when part two gets published. Thanks.